Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jonas Sandberg of Favikin and also the Swedish Sommelier Guild. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Levi. So you actually went to school to be a sommelier in Sweden. I did, yes. It was kind of a, a long time coming. I, I, I had a previous profession and uh, I was kind of starting at zero, basically. It was kind of like marketing management sort of thing? Yeah, pretty much. I worked uh, with the marketing management and for a large company and I enjoyed it immensely, but it wasn't really speaking to kind of my passion. I was pretty good at it, but it wasn't really, it didn't fascinate me, you know? So, and it's also interesting to kind of start completely over at anything pretty much. Uh, and it, it sort of still fascinates me that it's actually possible to do that when you're kind of in the middle of your career and you can actually kind of go back to scratch and start over and actually become, you know, okay at it, uh, which is, Really cool, actually. Well, you've done pretty well, and what uh, it's you been all right, yeah. seem to think is a short period of time, but which seems a fair amount of distance. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. But uh, it's still, I mean, I, I enjoyed it immensely, and the kind of journey to to transform into a new profession and just immerse yourself in it is really, really fascinating. You know, it's, it's been fun. Funny that you say that because it's you've actually had several kind of start overs, yeah. like in terms of going to London, yeah. going to Australia, yeah. working in a kind of comfort food brasserie yeah, sort yeah. of thing and then going out to the remote yeah. sticks <laughs> into a very different so i mean it's every stage is really different yeah and i think yeah one part of it is probably that it just sort of happened and one part is that i really kind of enjoy the challenge of of starting over and kind of just immerse yourself in something that you don't really have control over uh because you learn a lot in that process and i think that kind of learning is really what triggers me so you went to the hospitality school, and what's yes. that like in Sweden? It's very different. We have a few different schools. This is the uh, kind of university version. It's been around for a long time. It's been a fairly well-respected academy for food and wine since about 25 years. And it's actually in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. So you really, you get there and you have really no other options than to really dig deep and study, obviously taste a lot of wines and occasionally drink a lot of wines as well uh which is cool because you have a really cool kind of social network of people around you that are so super interested in wines and 
super dedicated. So you pretty much you do wine twenty four seven, which is uh, so it sounds kind of like a formal college. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, unless we, I mean, the the parties that we had was probably a bit more expensive on the wine side, but uh, apart from that, it was pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And what was the curriculum like? Basically, we uh, obviously there's a lot of wines and wine tastings, but also hospitality, and we studied some arts and food, of course, and uh, some uh, economics. I mean, running a wine program has a lot to do with getting the numbers right, because if you do that, you can be very creative, and if you don't have a sound economy, you can't really do shit. So, important part as well. And how long were you there? I was there for two years. Currently, it's a three-year program, but back in the day, it was two years. Smart choice on your part. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Get in before the Bailed shift. Out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was two really fascinating years. And, of course, I learned a lot, which was the important part. But I think also the kind of social aspect and getting to know a lot of people who was really dedicated was definitely as interesting and probably as beneficial in the end. I can see now that... When I work with people and like suppliers and other sommeliers and whatever, uh, a lot of those people I went to school with, which uh, which makes it a whole lot easier because you already have a connection. You kind of don't have to get to know them and they know me already. So it's it's pretty cool, yeah. But it also sounds like there was the beginnings of a generational change in Sweden. I think so, wine. yeah. I think so. And um, I think it was a, a pretty, uh, it was kind of a turning point. Of course, it's always easy to kind of see yourself being a part of a turning point or kind of a, a shift because that happens all the time. But I definitely see a lot of people in my generation coming out and being really dedicated and, and doing really great work. So it was immensely, immensely entertaining and, and good fun to be a part of that process for sure. And hopefully contribute at some stage. Yeah. So you graduated, you took the test and then you left to London. Uh, pretty much. I did a stage in London or maze, Gordon Ramsay's maze was just, just newly open at that time. And, Which was uh, a big opening. It was a big opening. It was a lot of kind of buzz around it. And of course... Uh, That's why he threw that food critic out, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, But it was good fun because... And it was more or less my first job on the floor, like ever. Uh, which was pretty um, pretty intense yeah, uh, to, to go like walk into a dining room. First, you know, like They got their first Michelin star just when I arrived, basically. And, um, and, um, also yeah. well played on your part. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, that was, that was an interesting few days, uh, starting out, but I learned a lot and I learned it fast out of necessity, <laughs> but I really did. And I, I did enjoy it. I had a really good uh, team around me. Laura Patrie was, was the, the head sommelier back then. Absolutely amazing. And just like basically gave me directions and I learned the ropes from there. So, but Ronan Saburn is like in charge of the yeah, group, exactly. right? He was, he was the group sommelier back then. And uh, we went a few, he did like classes for the whole uh, Assam team for, for the whole group. Uh, so I attended quite a few of those and uh, I've, I've gotten to know Ronan a lot better over the last few years. But uh, What's he, was, he like as a person? Uh, he's, he's, very, he's very funny, uh, very knowledgeable, obviously, uh, but a very funny guy and really great to have around. We've had it in Sweden uh, one or two times and uh, it's an absolute pleasure for sure. Would you say that there was a style to the wine service there? I would say it was pretty classic, but in the sense of a modern restaurant. And what really always kind of fascinates me, which is pretty different from how we work in Sweden, and I'm not sure about New York, but back there, I was, I mean, as a sommelier, I couldn't really, I didn't touch plates at all. I mean, only beverage. Uh, so pouring water, pouring wine, beer, drinks, everything, but not touching plates. And that's something you don't really see in Sweden a lot. Uh, usually there you have a very kind of 
fluid role. You help out pretty much where you can. And, and I mean, good or bad, but it's very different. So that kind of threw me off in the beginning because it was I was really un, un, unaccustomed to How many times did they tell you not to touch the plate? Yeah, pretty much. You know, like, <laughs> like, like I told you, off. don't touch the <laughs> yeah, plate. Pretty much. And uh, and also vice versa. I mean, um, the, the servers were not allowed to kind of touch wines or, or anything like that. Was, was, I, was, I thought it was fascinating, you know. Who was uh, allowed to polish glassware? Was that? Uh, that was us. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's been a lot of polishing glass work. But that's, you know, that's the profession. That's the game. I mean, we, we yeah. still do that. So, yeah, we're never going to get out of that. <laughs> What's the London consumer like for wine? Back then, it was a very classic scene. It's the classic wines. It was um, a lot actually happening. Uh, a lot of people kind of discovering the new world with uh, South Africa, South America, Australia have been around for a while. But it's really based in the classic wines for sure. And I mean, London is a very, I mean, as New York, it's a its a big city with a, a lot of people coming in from all over the world. And it's always vibrant. It's always fascinating for sure. Good and bad, but yeah. I feel like classic selections has kind of yeah. been your calling card throughout your career. Yeah, I would, I would say so. I think I started out just liking wines in general because it fascinates me. Like art, you know, in any, any kind of artistic expression, it fascinates me. And I don't really have any bias to where it comes from, but I seem to have gravitated a lot towards the classical wines for sure. I've definitely appreciated a lot of wines from other parts of the world as well. I mean, we can see movements here in in, in the US and uh, also in South America and Australia uh, that gears towards kind of the classic style. You don't have to be too nice to the U.S. wines. Usually, the no, U.S. only really aren't, don't. so yeah, you yeah, don't yeah, have yeah, to yeah. like. No, but, but I I do actually, and I think it's a it's a healthy kind of movement, and I can see it. I hear kind of similar ideas from South America, and we see a lot of great wines from Australia as well. They don't really make it to to our country basically because it's a long bloody way to ship them. But uh, but it's a it's a it's a positive thing for sure, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to kind of follow that that style as it progresses and as, as people learn more because you can never uh, deviate from the fact that to learn wine, to make wine from one place takes a lot of time. Um, you can't really do shortcuts. It doesn't work. Uh, you have to learn your place and kind of learn your grapes and styles and climate and everything, which is, which is also part of the fascination of it because there's no shortcuts. You know what they say, it takes the same length as a Scandinavian winter. You know. Yeah, and that's a long, long time, I can assure you. <laughs> so you get out of London and you go to Australia and how did that yeah. come about? I had a good friend of mine, a chef, I was talking to him about we need to kind of move around and, and learn, learn the ropes a bit. And we were sort of pondering the US or South America, South Africa and Australia. And we just basically went on a hunch. We thought basically, yeah, Sydney sounds cool. Let's do that. <laughs> that uh, opera house picture yeah, looks cool. Pretty you know. much, you know. I mean, <laughs> not far from that level. It was uh, it was a bit bizarre because we we basically came home, packed our bags, and left and uh, went to Sydney. None of us had any job. We just went for it, and it was really amazing. We got there, and I got a position as a sommelier at Est uh, with Frank Moreau as my boss, and I was still such a rookie, but I was thrilled to be there. I, I loved Est. I thought it was an amazing dining experience. And and uh, Frank was really, really, really cool with me. And I was really patient, actually, because <laughs> I, was, I was not really up to par, I have to say. But that was good fun. I learned a lot. And I spent uh, about six months at Est, and then I went back home to Sweden. If you could have told yourself some things 
you know, to know at that time that you realize now, what would they have been? To not maybe worry so much. Just go for it. I mean, it's going to work out either way. And and you learn probably a lot more from your mistakes than your successes. So, uh, like, yeah, don't worry too much. I mean, we're all in it to have fun. So, so you get to Sweden yeah. and you end up uh, working at kind of a classic place. Yeah, very much so. It's uh, it's close to the Hof. It's uh, really an institution in Stockholm. It's been around for over 120 years and uh, 25 years on the current ownership. Uh, and it's super classic French style cuisine kind of mixed in with the Swedish classics. And we started, it was already a good restaurant for wine when I got there, but we really kind of tried to pick it up a notch and really went for, uh, really kind of aimed a lot higher. And uh, we it looks built, like the selections kind of doubled. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, I would say. Um, and it was it was good fun because I worked with uh, with a guy who was really kind of had the same mentality as I. Um, so we, yeah, we just schemed our way to uh, getting uh, an okay from our bosses to basically go for it. And so we had a, an allocated space and unlimited budget, and we just had a, had a ball basically. <laughs> because there's a lot of verticals on there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And and you can see that it's been built over some time. So we spent, I was there for seven years and uh, we really, we bought a lot of wines and we really built what I consider to be a, a really nice wine list. Uh, it's always, I mean, it's always hard to get a hold of uh, all the older vintages and I would love to have verticals going back even further, but you also have to consider, I mean, first of all, getting a hold of it is hard and paying for it. It's, yeah, it hurts <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and you have to have the consumer in mind. I mean, if you're in New York, I would say there's a lot of like big buyers that can pay a lot of money for this special kind of wine. In Stockholm, we don't really have that as much. So you have to be kind of, you have to think about what would be an appropriate price for this wine. And if it's too pricey, then it's, it's just going to sit there. So, and you have to be respectful towards the restaurant because you can't just have huge selections for your own, you know, good fun. You have to actually do it because of the restaurant needs it so but at the same time it feels like a private buyer a consumer yeah in sweden may not have access to some of the things that you as a sommelier would have access to yeah. the way that the laws are yeah exactly yeah we have a monopoly for the private consumers so a lot of the collectors and kind of wine lovers definitely go to the restaurants to enjoy their wines and uh, uh, but alcohol is notoriously expensive in sweden uh, it's very like highly taxed so you, you definitely have to find a balance. But we, we do have some some really uh, awesome consumers, customers getting in and buying like great wines. And and also at Sudhof, we had a lot of international guests as well, Chelps, of course. So is that a percentage tax or is that a flat tax? Uh, both, actually. It's divided into two. So it's both percentage, which is pretty high, and then a flat tax up on top of that. As it gets more expensive, it really gets more expensive. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And how do you think that skews the market? I mean, does that mean that people tend to order different things than they might in New York? I'm not sure. We definitely, I, I mean, it's up to the restaurateur and the sommelier to kind of decide how you want to price your wines, obviously. And a lot of these serious restaurants working with wine lists in, in Stockholm and in Sweden definitely try to have as, as, as low of a cost as possible for the wines. Uh, I mean, the top-end wines and, and try to, and the more inexpensive ones are fairly pricey compared to what they cost but it's, it's really hard uh, every restaurant has their own philosophy and which i think is good uh, i mean the market decides so the wine lovers decide that 
this place is better than the other, then that's what's up, you know. But your place is, I mean, it's open from 11 a.m. to 2 in the morning, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. pretty bustling. And it's, For sure. It, it also seems somewhat casual, so you can yeah. kind of go in different yeah, ways. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a lot of industry people going there. We have pretty much all sorts of customers coming in. I mean, like family style dinners and like big groups of guys to you know, just want to drink a huge amount of beer and, um, and a lot of business people as well. They do turn over quite a bit of wine, both lunch and dinners, seven days a week, pretty much, both in volume and, and in like top wines as well. Uh, and we have a good reputation for our wine list. So we do definitely get a lot of people coming in for the wine list, especially. How does it work with interacting with the Swedish monopoly and what is that? As a sommelier, you don't at all. Uh, I have absolutely zero interaction with the monopoly. Uh, I think last time I went into a monopoly store to buy wines was probably four or five years ago. I mean, it's <laughs> uh, they have a, a good selection for the average consumer. But if you're really knowledgeable and want kind of the, the gems, it's really hard to find anything of value. So what do you do as a sommelier? How does a sommelier buy wine in Sweden? Uh, we buy directly from the importers. I see. Uh, so the importers sell both to the monopoly and to the restaurants. But as a non-restaurant individual, you yeah. wouldn't be able to do that? No. Not legally, anyway. What's the importer community like in Sweden? Pretty good, actually. Uh, also, I mean, as well as the restaurants and sommeliers, I think over the last 10 years, it's changed a lot. About 10 years ago, there were handful of, of big players and some smaller more like enthusiasts basically providing the wines but now we have probably a, i think it's three or four hundred registered importers and quite a few of them are actually really really good uh there are still obviously the big big companies providing uh, bulk wines and, and all that stuff but they also have good, good portfolios and we have tons of small independent importers now that are really doing a, an amazing effort to to get great wines in and get them out to the sommeliers especially. So we do appreciate that. What's the attitude towards wine in Sweden? Oh, we love it. <laughs> but has <laughs> no, that always been the no, case? Because, you know, people really. talk about aquavit. Yeah, exactly. Stuff. No, I mean, if you look back 25 or 30 years, beer and spirits was the only thing that sold. Uh, wine was a luxury commodity and it was something to people considered bit of a waste of money and just posh basically but over the last few years that's changed a lot now we drink a lot more wine we drink a lot better wines and it's the i think the the general public's attitude towards wines is really positive and it's a fun thing and it's it's cultural you know we uh, there's a lot of food we cook a lot you know privately and we go out we spend a lot of money going to restaurants and wine of course gets included in that so uh, i would say it's a very a very healthy Kind of environment right now for food and wine in general looking at that list i noticed that there was a designation for biodynamic yeah, uh, wines yeah, is yeah. that important to consumers there or? um not really we found out eventually uh, <laughs> it was, after uh, you put it on 500 wines and yeah, like reprinted a list yeah you're like, pretty oh. much no I, I mean it was an ambition from our side that we wanted to because there is an eco like brand as well but that doesn't really apply or we thought it was kind of irrelevant because only applied to growing the actual grapes and not how you treat the, the grapes in the winery. Once they got to the winery. So it was sort of not really an issue, we thought. I mean, it was just not valid. But biodynamics was an interesting thing. And, and it wasn't that long ago that biodynamics wasn't really that well known. So we, we wanted to just um, make a bit of a mark on those wines who were biodynamic because I thought it was interesting to see uh, whether people were asking for it and what they thought about it. But uh, we found out after a while that 
very few people cared about it. We do get some, or we did get some uh, customers coming in and ask for it, but very, very rarely. So uh, it's now it's pretty much on there because we might as well keep doing it, but it was not a big impact at all. Looked like the list was mostly French, yeah. a f- fairly high degree of German, which actually yeah. isn't that far away from yeah. you guys when you think about how close Germany is as mm-hmm. a country, and then some Italian. Yeah. Does that mirror what the average consumer has an interest in in Sweden? Um, <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, I, I would say, I mean, as a sommelier, uh, part of what you do is, of course, offer the public what they want, and part of it is educating the customer in what is interesting wines. So there must be a balance between these two. But we definitely made an effort of trying to provide what we thought were great wines. And if you have a look at the wine list, you can also see that we have a fairly small selection of South Africa and South America. Uh, We had some because people were asking for it. And it would probably be, um, would have been a good idea to have more. But we really wanted to also offer other wines as an option because we are, yeah, we were really kind of, classical in our taste basically so it was a bit of a both yeah for sure you share a border with norway yeah and you're nearby denmark Mm -hmm. like you can take a train or something underwater and get to denmark pretty easily i think right yeah so copenhagen is not far away norway has a big drinking culture as well how does sweden interact with those drinking cultures they're very different i mean the nordic countries have a lot of similarities but definitely a lot of differences as well on the practical side, it's uh, that Norway is not part of the EU. I mean, the, the monetary union, so there's a difference in taxation. And but the biggest difference is definitely in the way we consume wines and, and the preference for styles of wine. Uh, as you know, Denmark is definitely nowadays geared towards a lot of uh, natural wines, and uh, I would say Oslo and Norway is pretty much as far from. Uh, they drink a lot of classic, like it's Burgundy, it's Riesling. And that's pretty much it. And Sweden, I would say, is more a bit biased now, but I think more open-minded. We we definitely take in uh, like new regions really fast. Uh, we looked at South America really fast, and South Africa, and again, Australia, and the U.S. And uh, good or bad, but uh, it, it's a lot different. Denmark and Norway is a lot more kind of sticking to their guns, and, and uh, which is interesting though. But uh, but Sweden is very fast though, kind of adopting new regions and styles. So Denmark's all about natural wine. A lot of it, yeah. Norway is all about old wine from yeah. classic regions, yeah. and you're kind of in between those two things. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But the way the taxation works in Sweden, I wonder if there's kind of a drive towards the middle, because you have a flat tax yeah. that adds yeah. a lot of money to yeah. a cheap wine. Mm-hmm. So people are like, why would I buy you know something here that might be like $15? Mm-hmm. There might be quite a bit more, because yeah. it's a flat tax. Yeah. And then there's also the percentage tax, which yeah. the wines at the high end are really expensive. Yeah. So... Does that push everyone towards kind of the mid zone? In a way, yes. Uh, which is also a, a bit boring because it gets really mainstream and kind of, or streamlined rather. And uh, it's not really a fun kind of climate for a wine lover. But also, if you're really into wines, there is always a way to obtain wines from other parts of Europe and uh, kind of get away with it. Because you, you are allowed to, to bring in wines into the country that purchase outside and you can also order from like web-based wine shops as well. Well, don't they have those like bus tours? Like you can take a bus to Germany, fill up the back with yeah. like certain number yeah. of cases per person and come back without paying tax or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can. And I mean, but those people are more inclined to buy huge amounts of beer. Oh, is that true? Yes, it's true. 
<laughs> so like the it's same way true. I'd approach going to Montreal. Yeah, I mean, I w- yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah. I have never heard about anyone going down and purchase a lot of great wines. Like and J.J. Prome and like yeah, pulling exactly, them back yeah. up in the bus. It, I mean, it happens, but it's a, it's a handful of people, yeah. So you started the Swedish Sommelier Guild, and how yes. did that come about? Uh, we started talking about it about three years ago, um, and it was based on the fact that the Swedish Sommelier Association, it's it's been around for like 26 years. Which is a different group of people. Exactly. And and they made a huge contribution to Swedish sommeliers historically. But over the last few years, not a lot have happened. And uh, we were kind of frustrated because we were a, a fairly large group of, of psalms that really wanted to be active and dynamic and network and, and learn shit, basically. And uh, we didn't really see where to do that. I mean, we, we knew each other, so we went on trips and did, did tastings ourselves and stuff like that. And and we tried to sort of resurrect the association a few times without really any results. So, uh, and my mentality has always been, I mean, if you, if you do have a problem with whatever it is, uh, either you fix the problem or you shut the fuck up, right. basically. Be constructive um, or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take a hike. Um, so, uh, so that's what we did. We didn't feel to shut up, so we started a new association and we... We didn't really know what to expect. I mean, if we were going to get any good response at all. Um, but we were pretty overwhelmed by how many people have kind of was um, contacting us and, and joining like right off the bat, uh, which was pretty cool and, and a really energy boost. So, so we just went for it. We just rolled with it. And, and now it's a pretty large association. I mean, considering how many sommeliers there actually are in Sweden. So now we're about over 300 members. And... We, we try to be really, really active. I mean, we all work pro bono with it. and um, But it's good fun. We do a lot of tastings, competitions, some trips, and uh, a lot of like kind of networking activities and blind tastings. And it's really good fun. And the whole point is that, of course, to learn, uh, learn a lot and to educate our colleagues in the business, but also to get them to know each other because it's a very social profession and we all benefit from people kind of getting to know each other. So. Which seems like it's been kind of a keystone yeah, for you throughout yeah. your whole career. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was one of the kind of objections towards the uh, the other association because they had a you had to pass a test to be accepted. And um, our approach was more like we would like to welcome everyone and then educate them so that they good, get good at it. So we were working a lot more including, and they were more kind of excluding. That's our that's what we thought about it anyway. Did you feel that your own previous background in marketing had kind of helped you with that idea? <laughs> it probably did. I didn't think about it and I, I wasn't really kind of aware of it, but I think it have helped some, uh, at least like communicating and uh, just getting the word out. But I really never considered it at the time. But looking back, yeah, probably. Have we seen more and more sommeliers in Sweden or what's the progression? Hmm? Yeah, for sure. Um, we do have... Um, uh, like four or five sommelier schools in Sweden. That seems like a lot for it is a the lot. size of the country. Exactly. And um, and they're, they're really educating a lot of people. Uh, the problem, obviously, is, is their work for all of these people because there's a lot of talent out there, but you have to have restaurants that are ready to hire them. Otherwise, sure. it's kind of a, yeah, no point. Why do you think there's so many schools? That's a good question. I think that has to do with... Uh, the general increase in, in wine interest in the general public. So a lot of people want to educate themselves. And the one way is to go to sommelier school because they don't have, they're not required to be in the profession or 
work in a restaurant, so everybody's pretty much welcome uh, in most of these schools, which is fine. But of course, it's it's also become an issue that we have a lot of <laughs> a lot of people walking around calling themselves sommeliers and have, have never ever and have no intention of working in a restaurant ever. So that's a bit of a weird situation, I can. I think, but um, but it's what it is. I mean, I, I prefer that towards having no people at all wanting to work on the floor. In New York, we call those guys podcasters. I mean, in certain <laughs> certain instances. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. We haven't uh, named for those. Stuff, but, uh, <laughs> I'll come up with them. I'll I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. But regionally, do you see different yeah. styles within Sweden? Are the guys in Gothenburg different than the guys in Stockholm, or how does it go down? Not really. I mean, it's definitely kind of different communities for sure. But again, it's a small country, so uh, we don't really need to have like groups of people separated. And I think the the taste in wine is is fairly similar. Of course, if you look at the southern parts of Sweden, it's a lot closer to Denmark, so they're definitely more influenced by kind of the, the natural wine movement down there. But I mean, we're talking about details. I mean, in the in the broader picture. We all work together and we have a lot of good fun together. So, you know, if there's not so many sommelier jobs in Sweden, does that mean that people go to Copenhagen to take sommelier work? Or? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few people who are going to other Nordic countries or to the to England or to the US. And I mean, the matter of fact is, the good sommelier positions available in Sweden aren't that many. So usually, early in your career, you're probably most likely to become a server or a maitre d' and, and kind of take it from there. Work your way. Yeah, pretty much. And those people, including myself, don't really move around that, I mean, much. If, if you get a good position and you enjoy yourself, then you're going to be there for a while. I mean, I was at Studio for seven years and my predecessor were there for 16 years. And, uh, you know, that, that's a long time at any place. Uh, and especially in the restaurant industry where we usually see a lot of turnover of people. So, um, Do you think Sweden's going to become an exporter of sommeliers? Is it going to get to the point where you're like, hey, these guys are working all around the world? I sort of hope so. That w- I mean, I think that would be beneficial. We are, I think, I hope, generally considered to be hard workers and, and fairly good at what we do. So that would be, I mean, immensely beneficial for both parties, I think, and it's always a good experience to travel a lot and to experience different situations and restaurants and styles and whatever it is. And whether it's working in a vineyard or working in a restaurant or, I mean, just go out there, explore and learn and, and get the hell back here and so we can <laughs> capitalize on it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would be great for sure. Yeah. Do you think there's a Swedish style of service that's different than what you've seen in other cities? I think it's based on the French classic, but that's really moving away fast. I think we're looking more towards the U.S. Uh, when it comes to service, at least me personally, for sure. I like to give great service, but really relaxed service. I'm having a hard time seeing myself in a suit nowadays, but uh, we'll, we'll see about that. But uh, I, I, I really like when I can feel super welcome in a restaurant and with an honest smile, you know, and, and, and not being a forced kind of welcoming. I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to kind of define, but. That's the service I enjoy myself and that I enjoy in a lot of uh, Swedish restaurants, for sure. Usually very relaxed and good fun. And that's the kind of service I prefer myself. So after seven years in Stockholm yeah. working as a sommelier, you approached by the restaurant Favakin to work there. And how did that come about and what happened next? It came about, uh, my predecessor Robert resigned, obviously, in, in uh, April or May. And I was approached by Karen, who is the restaurant manager at Favakin. And she's a good friend of mine since many years back. We actually studied at Gudetutan, the sommelier school, 
So one of those early network relationships. Exactly. That you exactly. And she's been a good friend since. And uh, I have a huge amount of respect for her. And she's definitely one of the most fascinating personalities on the floor, I think. Uh, very, very genuine and extremely talented. And so she called me on the pretense of asking me what I thought was going to be a good sommelier for that position. Like, uh, how should we think? And uh, do you have any names that you can kind of... Because the other gentleman had opened up like a wine bar. Yeah, he was about to anyway. So so first I thought a lot about who would be good for this position because that's how she asked me. And, uh, and then she sort of said that I was in that list myself. And that, of course, changed in the way I thought about it. Then I said, yeah, you should, shouldn't get anyone else. Get yeah, anyone. yeah, yeah. Actually, the list is a lot smaller <laughs> exactly, yeah. than I had previously imagined. Pretty much, yeah. So I took everything back that I said. And uh, no, but I, I considered it for, for uh, some time. Because uh, it's a very different thing. Than it what is you a very different doing. thing, yeah. And, but I've always had a huge amount of respect for Favik and for Magnus, who's the chef, and for Karen as well. And I've been there dining myself quite a few times. And I've Oh, always... you'd made the journey already. Oh, yeah. Like I'm, you'd gone up. Exactly. I've, I've to been the there frozen tundra. Five or six <laughs> times, I think. So I, I, really, I knew the restaurant well as a guest, as a visitor. But of course, it's a very different thing to work there. But I was immediately attracted to the idea of working there because, again, doing something completely different, uh, learning from the start, like, pretty much going from scratch, in my mind anyway, was really interesting. It fascinated me and it kind of triggered me. And uh, and as soon as I started to think about it, I couldn't really let it go. So I, I gave my notice and uh, I moved up there a couple of months later. And how would you sum Favikin up as a restaurant? I mean, what should I know about it if I've never been? It's a fascinating place, for sure. Um, I've always thought about it as um, Magnus's kind of own creation of his own universe. It is truly uh, mind-blowing both in nature and the setting and everything around it, but also how uh, Magnus has organically made the restaurant, created this whole place. And, um, and everything in it makes sense because it fits, because it comes from one idea, basically. Pretty cool. So it's not a constructed place. It just uh, developed organically. And of course, we are very blessed with a, a beautiful setting and, and that whole thing. But... It's near a ski resort. Uh, exactly. And uh, it's like 30 minutes drive from a ski resort. So that's the closest village. But it's really out in the nowhere. And and also the food is, in my mind, some of the best meals I've ever had in any place, in any part of the world. What's the food it's, like? I, I'm going to say simple. Um, because I do really think it's very approachable. It's not very technical. It's based on amazing produce um, that we source locally, all of it. Isn't there some like hunting resort there yeah. kind of thing? Like yeah, exactly. We, we uh, have very close collaborations with, uh, with hunters and with farmers, uh, fishermen and so on. So we, we have longstanding relationships with them. So we get really, really good produce. And then we follow season because Magnus's idea is that we're not going to buy anything from a remote place just because we need to. Then we need to change the dish or just take it away or create something new, um, which completely controls the whole menu. If we can't get a hold of something, then it's off the menu. So, but, but I've always found uh, the food really accessible. I think it was a bit more, uh, when I was there for the first time, probably about five or six years ago, uh, it was more maybe dramatic uh, and more looking to shock a bit, I think. What I found now is I find it a lot more intelligent. I find it a lot more confident um, and 
a lot more coherent. But about six years ago, was that kind of when Magnus first started yeah, as the chef? Because he wasn't originally there no, as the exactly, chef. Yeah. yeah, I was there the first time, I think the first year. I don't remember exactly when, but uh, during his first year when he came up there. And it was kind of interesting progression for him because he actually started yeah. as the sommelier. Exactly. It was. It was. Uh, it's an interesting story. I mean, he was recruited there as a sommelier. He just graduated from from a sommelier academy in, in Stockholm, and was recruited as the private sommelier for the family who who owns the estate. And I think, well, going back a bit, he he worked at La Strans for for quite some time. And I think when he came back to Stockholm, he missed uh, the the excellent produce that he worked with in in Paris. Um, and I think a lot of the suppliers in Stockholm didn't really care a lot about the quality. Uh, so he came back and was really frustrated by the fact that he couldn't get a hold of really, really excellent produce. So that's why he started sommelier school to kind of well, change direction a bit. And then he came up there and I think he, he just started seeing like, wow, just everywhere I look, there's actually excellent produce around me. So that's where the idea of Favicans started and actually developing the concept of, of building the kind of restaurant that it is now. And of course, a lot of happened since, but uh, it's based on that same idea that we have great produce around here and we can, I mean, with, with the genius of Magnus, we can produce something really spectacular. So why import second or third quality yeah. things when what you have, if you recognize the potential of it, actually has genius in it already? Yeah, exactly. The, of the yeah. local produce. Yeah, for sure. And what's he like as a person? Magnus is a really intelligent man. Um, he's very knowledgeable and he's actually very funny and down to earth. I mean... All the top chefs of the world are very kind of unique people. I mean, everyone that is really extremely talented usually is a bit quirky as well. <laughs> uh, but uh, Magnus is a really, a really funny guy. And uh, when you get to know him, he's a, he's a very kind of normal guy, uh, except from the obvious fact that he's completely obsessive uh, with what he does, uh, which of course helps. What's his approach to creating a dish? Um, I'm going to leave that to Magnus to explain, but uh, basing on the fact, the two facts that started the restaurant, it has to be of absolutely excellent quality, absolutely flawless. If it's 99%, it's not even close to getting on the plate. And also, it has to be local. And those are pretty much the only two rules. And as I mentioned before, I think it's gone a lot more confident uh, when he has now about six years running it. You can definitely see a natural progression towards more elegance, more finesse, and, and just more coherency in, in the full menu, I think, anyway. So, yeah. What's it like to talk to him about wine? It's good fun. I mean, he, he knows a lot about wines, uh, but he also has a huge amount of respect for what we do in the dining room. Uh, and he acknowledges that we are experts at what we do. And he definitely gives his input if you like something or not. But I've never experienced him like making a final call that contradicts uh, what I've said or anyone else. So uh, he's very respectful towards what we do in the dining room, which I um, yeah admire hugely seems like the chef team is fully into the dining room. Like yeah, he yeah. might open the door for you or they might cut the marrow in the middle of the dining room yeah. or that kind of thing. Very much, yeah. Because we have um, a very kind of unique way of service. Uh, we serve everyone at the same time uh, and we present the food for the, f the whole dining room at the same time. Then we have to help out, basically. By what you mean? Like Exa 16, 16 seats? covers, yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a big place, obviously. But uh, it takes uh, a few hands to, to get the food out there. So the, the, the chef are always helping out, uh, doing everything, serving and, and everything. Uh, and Magnus is always there, uh, like greeting everyone. And uh, he's very, 
it's very there basically and also usually takes a lot of time after dinner to kind of uh, talk with the guests and, and and hear what they say and what they like and didn't like and stuff like that so, how long is a typical dinner uh we always start at seven o'clock and we're usually done about maybe 10 30 11 depending on if you want to like hang around for coffee or, you know. so does that mean that people tend to get two bottles or we do a lot of wine pairing I see. Uh, probably about 85 90 percent is wine pairing uh, and I think that's mostly due to the fact that a lot of people come there and they just want the full experience. Uh, they just want to sit back, don't take any decisions. They just want the full experience, uh, which I can definitely understand. Um, I mean, it's always good fun to work with actively with a wine list, but I also think that we do provide a very good wine pairing now. So I'm, I'm really happy to do that as well. So. so if I were to look at some of the menus that I've seen, yeah. uh, Really simple vegetable dishes. Yep. Very lightly touched seafood. Yep. You see some pickled things and some creams that are a bit sour. Mm -hmm. And then some pretty full bore meat dishes. Yeah. <laughs> How do you go about pairing wine with those? What's the approach? Uh, the approach is, I mean, quite simple in a way. Uh, we have, the dinner is, uh, the whole menu is divided into sections. Uh, it, it's not probably obvious for the guest sitting there but it's divided up into sections and every section represents a beverage that we pour so usually when we change a dish it changes within that section uh and the menu changes all the time but not like in big way it's usually just details that change and uh, obviously if we change the protein or something like that I, I will know about it beforehand and if i need to change something on the wines but it's really i want the focus to be on the food and I want the wines to be supportive. And I mean, I've always had um, the idea of food and wine pairings. It's not really that hard. Just serve excellent food, find excellent wines. It'll be good. But yeah. pickled things. Yeah, I know it's hard. And but really light vegetables. No, true. Absolutely. Those things seem hard to me. Those, those are hard. And uh, I mean, sometimes you really kind of need to scratch your head and go back and taste and, and really think about it. But um, we have a huge advantage which is that we don't serve a lot of people so you can actually get a hold of wines for the wine pairing that usually it's not enough quantity to to fill up a restaurant but because um, theoretically you could take one bottle and pour that for the course for the much. entire room exactly pretty much uh, so i'm not forced to buy a lot of wines i can really kind of pick and choose which is amazing but yeah of course i mean there's a lot of challenges in in some of the dishes that we do but uh, i think we've uh, kind of found a good uh, good collaboration between the kitchen and the dining room and finding out a lot of fun fun stuff so the thing about favican is yeah. it's also got accommodation where yeah. you can stay for one night i believe just one yeah. night yeah, exactly yeah so people come they have dinner and then they stay and then they leave the next day yep yeah. That's a little different than a lot of restaurant interactions where it feels like you're a little bit more with them yeah. for a 24 hour period. Almost. Absolutely. And I think it's such an amazing thing that you actually greet the, the guests when they arrive, usually afternoon ish. And you greet them, you take care of them, and then you pretty much you're with them until they go to bed, literally. Uh, and you have a lot of time with them. I mean, if they want, of course, they can go like for a walk or for a sauna or whatever. But uh, we do have a lot of time with our guests, which makes it really fun because we actually build a relationship with them during the evening. And when they sit down, we have always already spent like three or four hours with them, like chatting and just like, what do you like? What are your dislikes? And usually you, maybe you have 
uh, similar, uh, you have some friends in common or you've been to the same restaurants and there's a lot of things you can talk about. And of course, most of our guests coming in are, they have researched a lot. I mean, they know about the restaurant. It's not Obviously, a place you end exactly. up casually. You don't drop in, you know, which is hard, but uh, they, um, they researched a lot, looked at a lot of pictures and uh, um, read blogs or articles or whatever. And maybe they have the book as well. And it, what is amazing, what really blows me away is that when they get there, the anticipation is just through the roof. I mean, just stepping out of the taxi and when you go up there and greet them and say, hello, very welcome, they're bursting with anticipation. I mean, not a lot of restaurants have that luxury. And I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to call it cheating because um, when they get up there, they just, want, they just want to experience everything. And as long as we put out some really nice food and pour some really good wines, they're going to be super excited. So. How much does the world's 50 best ranking play into that from the San Pellegrino? Um, it definitely plays into it when it comes to what kind of people we have there, for sure. We do get a lot of people who are very well-traveled and eat a lot in top restaurants, for sure. I would say probably our clientele is 85-90% international, uh, which is, of course, crazy because they have to fly into Stockholm and then fly another hour and then drive for one and a half hour to get to Fabiken, which is crazy, you know. Um, you and the Tibetan monastery are kind of neck and neck. Pretty much, in terms yeah. Of journeys. Exactly. And yeah, it's a bit of a temple, I guess. But anyway, so you have to be really, I mean, I'm, it really fascinates me that people are really going through all this trouble to get there. Uh, and you can only hope that we can deliver a, a product that makes them really happy when they leave. And I mean, it, it seems like we are, so. Do people tend to look for more unusual wines or do they tend to look for the great classics that they think of as great? A bit of both, uh, definitely. I think uh, Favik and, and the kind of aura that, that we have, many people expect us to do really crazy wines and esoteric wines and a lot of natural wines. And uh, we don't really. We do some um, if we like them. But we don't really have a general, we don't have a rule that this is what we're going to use and this is not what we're going to use. If we like the wine, if it works with the food, then it's on. I'm not really big fan of dogmas um, at all. So um, I don't really care what label the wine has. Uh, if it's good enough and it fits the profile, then, it's, then it should be poured. What's the big difference between working that far out in the country and working in Stockholm? How do you see those things? As uh, well, one side obviously is, uh, I mean, living there for me personally, and that's one thing. And professionally, of course, people has to put a lot of effort and money actually to get there. Um, if you slip into a restaurant in Stockholm, it's, it's very, it's not a lot of effort going into it. Uh, you just basically walk in there and that's, and then you're done. But you put a lot of effort into going to fabric and usually have to plan it like three, four, five, six months in ahead just to get a table and actually make the arrangement for the trip and everything. So. So, of course, it's a huge difference as, as a customer of, of getting there. And you can really feel that when they get there. That they, have, they have invested so much and they are like super excited to be there. Uh, so that's definitely... And I know personally, I mean, if you, if you come there as a guest, you, you spend a X amount of hours on a plane and then you drive for one and a half hours through the woods. And you have a lot of time to build the anticipation <laughs> of actually getting there. So that's really uh, kind of a, a cool journey to make. And when you get there, you usually you're just dying from just going out there and getting the whole thing going. How many people want to try on that fur jacket? Uh, a lot. 
yeah a lot do, do people actually get to wear it and stuff yeah no absolutely i mean we're uh, yeah it, it's right there and um of course if you want to try it you're more than welcome yeah <laughs> has seeing that kind of anticipation and working with that and yeah. then having the pleasure of being with people for basically yeah. a long period of time has that changed your approach to wine is that you know as a sommelier you had a, a certain rhythm over seven years but now is it a different story in some way yeah it has changed some. Uh, I don't think my approach to wine has changed at all, um, but definitely my approach to working on the floor has changed some. In my previous restaurant at Studehof, I was very much only a sommelier. And when you work at Fabikin, you're everything. And I carry wood and I carry bags and I serve food and I take care of people. I you know, do the sauna and it, I mean, it's everything. And as well, of course, I'm opening wines on occasion and pour them. But the position of sommelier is it's a very broad spectrum, which is amazing because you get to learn so many, so many weird things that you would never thought you would as a sommelier. And that's good fun. I mean, it's very different. And my first few weeks, it was really a roller coaster. You know, I, I honestly thought that I was a, you know, I was a, I'm a pretty good sommelier. I know what the hell I'm doing. And you got there and it's like, okay, I don't know shit. Yeah, I, I, I haven't carried over. wood in a while. Exactly. I, I got to start from scratch, like really kind of clear everything and go from scratch, which I did. There's not many restaurants that say, okay, get ready for dinner. Here's your communal shower. And then yeah. all of you people that were in that communal shower are now going to dine with each other for three hours eating the same yeah. courses. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a little different, you know. It's very different. But it builds a really interesting uh, dynamic between the, between the guests. As you say, I mean, they usually spend a lot of time together before they even sit down. And when they do sit down, uh, we have a few starters coming out and they usually sit in groups of, of more than one company. Um, so oh, I can, see. So it's not just one. It's not like a four top and there's four people there. Exactly. It, so people might be sitting next to each exactly. other that they don't know. Yeah, exactly. So the first kind of part of the, of the meal, uh, they usually spend a lot of time together with other guests and they can talk about it and everything, which also it's very interesting. And build dynamics. And then we move upstairs to the dining room and then everybody has their separate table. Um, but it, it's, it's pretty cool because then again, after, after dinner, we all move downstairs and everybody goes back to kind of the original setting. And, uh, and then everybody, of course, has a lot to talk about. They want to share experiences and, and talk about the food and service and, and the whole thing. Uh, and that creates friends. And uh, I mean, a restaurant environment is a very social environment. And if you're 16 people out in the countryside, that's what you do. You know, you, you, you're not getting in way. <laughs> That's your friends who are there. You know. What is it that they tend to talk about the most afterwards? Uh, it's definitely food. I mean, uh, usually we, we get like really positive comments on, on service and, and wines as well. But, um, but the food is a star. Easily, yeah. Is it sometimes hard to get that social dynamic to work well? Do you kind of have to call through and be like, I don't know if this group of people is really going to get along well with that group. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. You do have to think about it. Of course, we can't control everything. I mean, especially, I mean, as you know, people come into a dining room with uh, with baggage and, and... Do you ask, like, are you Republican or Democrat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Here? Yeah, <laughs> we, I mean, we just have a, like a red and a blue color <laughs> and you just choose it. No, but it's, it's a fascinating thing, but we do try to kind of consider who people are sitting with because that is definitely part of the, the the experience. And I mean, yeah, we do try anyway. Sometimes it doesn't work as good as we have hoped, but usually it works out fine. I mean, people are there, they want to enjoy the experience and uh, there's no time to kind of be grumpy over yeah, text that you got a few minutes ago or whatever. 
you have a selection of liqueurs. Uh, yeah, we um, we try to make a lot of beverages ourselves. Uh, so for the alcohol-free pairing, we do everything ourselves, like nectars and uh, cold-pressed berries and fruits and stuff. Uh, we make a lot of infusions and we do a lot of liqueurs, aquavit and stuff like that. So that's really great fun. Uh, we do some of own cocktails as well, which are pretty spectacular, I think. Um, and it's good fun. I mean, again, we have everything around us. So it's just a matter of foraging and, and getting everything in and then quite trying to create something that is really good. How do you see the evolution over the next, say, if you stay there for seven years, yeah. what are your goals? Um, ooh, that is a good question. I'm not really sure. I, I think, I mean, Magnus has a very uh, definitive, I mean, his thinking is that we, we change when we can do something better. And if we can't do anything better, we're not going to change it. And I think that's very much uh, the mentality that I've adopted as well for the wines and for the service as well. So it depends. If we come up with good things, then we're going to put them on the menu or in the pairing. But if we don't, then we're going to leave it. But uh, it's hard to project that far in the future. We do have some projects going on. We opened a charcuterie about a year ago. Uh, which produces excellent uh, like sausages and stuff like that. And uh, we have a few other projects in the pipeline, but um, I mean, we'll see. It's it's uh, time consuming, but from next year, we're going to have different opening hours uh, over the year. So we're going to be closed for four consecutive months. So we're going to have a lot of time of just pickling. talking about it. And yeah, <laughs> pretty much pickling, yeah. And just taking care of produce and, and of course, develop the whole concept. I mean, uh, to, to come up with new ideas. And I mean, as you know, Nine out of ten ideas is crap, but hopefully one in ten is is really excellent, and then we can use it. Does that also give you more time to work with the guild a little bit? Um, it might, yeah. Um, I'm stepping down uh, as the president uh, after, I mean, next year, uh, and someone else going to take over. But I'll definitely be involved in the guild further up as well, but maybe not as my, in my current role. Jonas Sandberg, he changes when he can do something better. Jonas yeah. Sandberg of Fabican, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Jonas Sandberg of Fabican Restaurant in Sweden. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.